Welcome to the Palef Bukhara podcast. She is speaking. She is speaking. In each 20-minute episode, I'll have the chance to interview and celebrate strong, brilliant and inspiring women. I always say I love you. I loved maths. I loved problem solving. In that moment, every little tiny margin really does count. Hello and welcome back to the Carlef Bukhara podcast. Today we're going to be chatting with Ruth Buscombe, Head of Race Strategy for the Alfa Romeo Racing Orland Formula One team. After graduating with a first-class honours degree from the University of Cambridge, Ruth started as a simulation development engineer at Scuderia Ferrari. Here she was developing and implementing algorithms and was quickly promoted to strategy engineer. She then worked for Team Haas in the same role and is now at Alfa Romeo Racing Orlan. Before I introduce Ruth, I just have one little detail to share with you, as I know many of you are Carlef Bukhara fans. So the brand has no secret agenda to enter Formula One, sponsor a team or even start driving themselves. There are enough brands, uh, watch brands already in Formula One, so no need for them to join in too. Uh, but we're very interested uh, to learn more about Ruth for the awesome woman that she is and also learn about her fascinating world. So without further ado, hello, Ruth. Hello. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. So let's uh, maybe start at the beginning. Um, how did you get into engineering and was it something that you were interested in from a very young age? Yes, so um, my house isn't a football house. My house growing up was a Formula One house. So uh, Sundays were always watching Formula One in my family. So uh, my dad was a big Formula One fan. Um, and as soon as I kind of worked out about the age of around 10, that um, you could do maths um, and you could have a competition with it. Uh, that was that was it for me. So I uh, pretty much set my heart on being a, a Formula One engineer Um from the age of about nine or ten um and that was yeah that was basically um that was it and so I loved maths I loved problem solving um and kind of made all of my decisions from that point a very you know um, um obstinate ten-year-old um to go for straight from that point um I decided to go to Cambridge because that's where all of the technical directors um that were kind of in some of the teams when I was growing up um went and to do the same course as them uh, so yeah it was uh, it was basically based off of a love of maths and problem solving and um and, and the excitement of surrounding Formula One watching it growing up oh wow that's a great a great story um you're certainly in the right country for being a for Formula One, for that kind of education, right? Yes, definitely. Very lucky to be uh, to be in the UK, where there's um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of our engineers come from here. But uh, it's getting more and more more and more multicultural. So even in our track engineering group at Salba, um, we don't actually have a dominant country. We've got we've got three British people, um, three Spanish or Catalans. We've got Italians, Germans. Um, Austrians, all sorts. <laughs> oh, that's great. You're a strategy engineer. Um, what does that entail exactly? So being a strategist within a Formula One team is basically um, trying to facilitate the best possible decision making when it comes to how we attack a race weekend. Um, so that can be anything from what kind of um, what what tires we want to use? We have different compounds. We have the the soft tire, medium tire, and a hard tire. Soft tire is quicker, um, but go, runs out um, uh, sooner. The medium in the middle, and then the hard is the slowest tire normally, um, but lasts a long time. So we have 
these different compounds. Um, we get given um, a bunch of them at the beginning of the race weekend. We have to decide how we want to use those tyres between the practice sessions where we're collecting data um, about both how the tyres perform, how our car performs, how competitive we are, um, and then in qualifying where we want to go as quickly as possible because that sets the grid for the race. And then in the race itself, what tyres do we need? Um, what what um, basically which is the fastest way to get to the from the start of the race to the end of the race? Bearing in mind you've got other cars on track and you've also got things like safety cars potentially there's rain different track conditions um so it's it's how we make a plan for how we use these tires across the race weekend and then to do the timings so um what data do we need to collect in p2 what can we fit in the program uh, it's not just strategy that needs information we need information about like aero um to do with the engine to do with um, temperatures and um, for things like brakes and other things like that fuel um, then in qualifying it's when do you drop the car out um, so what what's the best sequence for the tires what's the best sequence for the traffic um, and then in the race is the part of race strategy that most people see on the tv which is um, what tire do you start on if you have a free tire choice when do you stop how many stops do you want to do uh, and uh, that's normally you get to see the kind of tip of the iceberg where we say right we want to stop the car and then the race engineer on the radio says box 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 and that's normally the bit that you get to see uh, on TV. Oh, wow. There's a lot of moving parts in, in all of that. Yeah, lots of moving parts, but uh, most of them are quite exciting. So that keeps you... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it keeps you on your toes. Yes, definitely. Um, how much of it is decided before the race and how much kind of changes in, in the moment? So it's about 98% preparation. Um, okay. Generally things when you're trying to do maths live doesn't go as well as a computer so um it's all about being kind of as prepared as possible for as many different situations that can that can happen because the only true worst case scenario is not having a plan uh, to deal with something so you'll look throughout um the preparation process and, and specifically on saturday night when you know where you've qualified where your competitors have qualified uh, you know kind of the, the best guesses you got for what the weather's going to be like um, what would you do on lap one if you have a really good start? What do you do on lap one if you have maybe a poorer start? What do you do on lap one if you have um, damage on your car? What do you do if um, there's a safety car, for example? And then you have more, um, let's say, understanding of what happens if something shifts the race. So let's say if overtaking is more difficult, you'll have looked through scenarios to try to understand what you will then do if a whole parameter changes does that mean that the race is more likely to be a one stop than a two stop does it mean that you're more likely to bring your stop forward or push it out so you're generally trying to understand sensitivities to what can happen so that when you see uh, a combination of factors during the race you already know kind of where that's going to push the correct answer or at least you hope you do <laughs> yeah oh excellent what's the worst thing that can happen for you like personally when you're in the box and i mean is it like a rain storm or a breakdown what's like the worst thing that you just think oh I hope this doesn't happen today um lap one accidents you know I think that's the worst thing for any Formula One team is everybody has put so much work in um to everything in terms of getting to the point of the race you put so much preparation in um and then you know if you have a you have a DNF, which means your car, you know, does not finish um, right first corner lap one. It's it's really heartbreaking um, because it's just such a such a terrible start to the race. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. 
uh, normally you have two cars so um, you know unless they both retire you've got something else to work for but yeah it's a real a real heartbreaker in terms of all the work kind of ending 800 meters rather than uh, rather than some kilometers after oh yeah that might, I can imagine um, timing is obviously very very important uh, with all sports uh, or most sports at least um, you know to complete the distance in the least possible time how important is timing on, on your side of uh, of you know of the equation oh it's it's everything really so um it goes from the timing of the the pit call so we'll have a set point on the on the track which is the last point that we can change a tire compound we'll have um the time the last point that we can call a pit stop and still manage to get the car in um qualifying comes down to um really really fine margins so uh, for example this race weekend we just had in austria um q1 where we have all 20 cars on track we had from the car that came seventh to 15th within two tenths um and then even in uh, (laughs) so it's it's a really really very small margins qualifying two for example between p6 and p11 there was eight hundredths so we had five cars on one track that set lap times between eight hundredths. And that was the difference between going through to qualifying three or being knocked out. So it all comes down to really, really, really fine margins, not just in terms of what we do, but also where the fine result is and what's the difference between uh, success and failure. Oh, well, what's your record for a tyre change? Um, I think so. The the fastest tire change ever is, I believe, one point eight two seconds. Um, oh, so wow. Red Bull currently hold the the world record. Um, so no, they're very quick. Normally they're just over two seconds. So you're changing all four tires um, in around two point two point two two point three seconds. Um, wow. And that that again makes a massive difference. So you know you see the rankings between uh, between the kind of the cars that do the best and the cars that do the worst and you know that even a slow pit stop is three seconds so it's it's all yeah, very it's quick it's almost a sport in itself right? yeah definitely <laughs> so we actually have a championship as well for it so oh, we really? have a, yeah we have a pit stop championship so um yeah no, that's it. it's a it's a real element of uh, of competition and it makes such a difference because um a lot of the ways that you get overtake cars um, it's not just out in the track it's also in the pits so we have a thing called like an undercut where or an overcut where you are trying to make positions through the pit stop and in that moment every little tiny margin really does count oh wow that's uh that's really interesting i tried once i had the opportunity to try and change the entire at le mans uh yeah so you have all my respect because it was really hard <laughs> i couldn't do it i just yeah, tell yeah. The, the others to do it so <laughs> oh. yeah i think we'd have it would be definitely a lot slower than two and a half seconds if yeah, i was yeah. changing the pit stop tire yeah i think i was in the minutes range actually, <laughs> but, yeah. um so one thing at carlef bucara which is um it's very special is, is like individualization of their watches. So they do bespoke watches for clients um, according to their wishes, um, their desires, what, you know, whatever they like. And it's very similar a little bit to the Formula One cars that are made for the driver or each driver. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about this? So um, in Formula One, we have two different drivers and there'll be parts in a Formula One car that are the same across the two cars. And then you'll have certain parameters and certain things that you can change in terms of setup 
which will be independent and, and as you say, will be customised to, to how a driver likes to drive the car. Um, they have their own seats, they have their own helmets, they have their own um, you know, gloves and things like this. So there's, there's a lot to do with comfort. Some drivers prefer um, to have smaller windscreens in terms of the buffeting, some have slightly longer ones, and then the setup parameters are really, really the big differences. So certain drivers like to drive um, with a more reactive car, some drivers like to have um, a car that's got a bit more understeer in it. Some car drivers like to drive with a bit of oversteer. Um, so it, it, it really is, um, um, let's say it's their baby. So it's all customised to, to the way that they can get the most out of it. Um, and um, that's part of the preparation work that's done on the Fridays. Normally you'll have a pretty similar starting setup across the cars unless you're you're checking some particular parameter. And then you'll, um, you'll kind of tune it to the to the way that the driver can get the best out of it and also some drivers um, have a preference more to set the car up for the race so typically a car that would do well over a long stint isn't exactly the same setup that you would choose um, to get the maximum out of one lap Um, the rear wing is one of the best examples of this that if you were just going to do qualifying all the time you would have a very big rear wing um, where you would have a lot of downforce because generally that makes the the quickest lap time um, and then in the race, it's more of a trade-off between lap time and top speed. And normally the skinnier win- wings are the ones that have the better top speed, but then it's slightly trickier in qualifying. So again, depending on where the team is, the team's preferences, what we think we need in terms of lap time and top speed, um, and how the driver feels in the car, you might even end up having a different just different choice across the cars in, mo- in many Formula 1 teams. Wow, that is fascinating. It's a whole different world. It's all new <laughs> for me. So, yeah, I'm loving it. Um, so a question about uh, the pandemic. So for us in the, the watch industry, it was, uh, it, was, it was quite tricky. And a lot of brands uh, raced to, to improve their digitalization, to have e-shops, to sell their watches and to reach out to their customers. How did the pandemic affect you guys in, in Formula One? Um, well, I think first and foremost we went to Australia for three days which I wouldn't recommend for the jet lag um, oh. so, so that was a that was a dramatic start to the season I think um actually within um track engineering um because we were and specifically within strategy and you know I've led the group now for five years and for the, the first three and a half of those, we weren't in a pandemic, um, but we actually work remotely anyway because we're working um, at the races a lot of the time. You know, if we're going to um, a back-to-back, which is we go straight from one race to the next in um, um, Austin and Mexico, for example, we're already away and we're already working remotely. So actually, um, track engineering was a really good, um, let's say, seed point that we actually then started to roll out a lot of what we've been learning and how we've been operating for years to other parts of the company as well in terms of, you know, everybody learning how to communicate um, more remotely, for example. So, yeah, we were, we say we did Zoom before it was cool, even though it wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How about for audiences? Because people obviously couldn't go and watch races. Did you see more people online joining, you know, your website or or watching YouTube or bored sitting at home? Yeah, definitely. I think there was there's quite a lot of esports that went on, and then um, certainly when we got back to racing um, across the board, there was some really fantastic ideas from teams Formula One about how you can integrate fans um, in terms of remotely as well. So that that's been that's been really impressive. 
Um, and then I think during the race weekends itself, it's mostly been, you know, with all the new COVID protocols. Um, so we all PCR tested. We kind of live in these bubbles as a team. So it, that's been the strangest thing. And in fact, now we're going back to some races where we do have full capacity. Uh, it's almost strange to have the fans back. It's wonderful. But you're like, wow, that's so many people. I can't, how yeah. did we have this amount of people um, before? So, yeah, it was, um, we had full capacity in uh, Spielberg um, and I think the thing that shocked everybody the most was how noisy it was you, you forget how loud lap one is in a race um, oh, really? after, after having um, no fans for a year where it's kind of deathly silent um, you'll suddenly think well you know there's a lot of Dutch fans so you kind of heard massive screams you're like well it's either gone very well or very badly for oh. the, the Dutch driver at the front <laughs> oh excellent yeah because the cars make a lot of noise by themselves so you would yeah. think I mean you wouldn't expect to hear the people so much during a race but no that's interesting. you definitely can certain certain tracks especially so um, Silverstone is another is another loud one because of the capacity so when that's at full capacity especially if there's a British driver uh, or a British team winning you can actually hear the car go around the track on the last lap of the race because you can hear the crowds you can't hear oh, the car wow. noise but you can hear the crowd start to cheer so no it's like a, really a Mexican ray- wave like a, ray- like a Mexican <laughs> wave for a British driver at least recently oh. thankfully <laughs> Do, does that really boost you when you're working in the box as well to to have that, that sort of cheering in the background yeah I mean I think it's I mean, we've um, Kimi Raikkonen has an awful lot of fans so you can um, we, we often get get cheers for him when he uh, he's got very loud fans and then in um, Monza a couple of years ago um, we had a great qualifying with Antonio and he actually went on to get get a point in that race which was um, which was his first point of the season and that was very noisy so it was we were kind of with the Italian fans that were um, celebrating both a Ferrari win and an, an Italian scoring points on home soil that was very noisy and great and it really hyped everybody up on the grid to see all of the all of the Antonio Giovinazzi fans as well so no, we're, we're very lucky at Alfa Romeo to have such dedicated uh, dedicated fans oh, um, do you get stressed is it stressful you know the beginning of the race where you're sort of you know those 10 minutes before it starts is everybody nervous or are you so you know it's like just another day at the office I think it's it's a big part of my job to not be stressed um, and to to work with kind of like you know psychology and sports psychology to understand how you can you can channel those emotions into a positive outcome so as I've spent time in Formula One I've I've practiced several techniques in terms of the way that I know I focus with my breathing I focus with um, procedures and put myself in a frame of mind where I'm able to perform because you know after 60 seconds you've got to make a decision about what you're going to do you know do you do you bring the car in or do you keep it out lap one is often one of the most strategically important parts of the race you need to know what you're going to do if you have a good start if you have a bad start Um, and so I think it's about kind of trying to trying to take nerves or something that apprehension um, and actually you just you make that a positive and you make that adrenaline work for you and you try to turn it into something where you're focused solely on your job and you're focused on the kind of the processes and the decision making that you you need to do so yeah. normally it's not the part where my heart rate is the highest so that's okay, so <laughs> what is the part then when where your heart rate is the highest um so it's normally during the pit stops because this is the kind of 
the moment where you know if there's any issues you know you can you it's the kind of the part that you can see where something could go wrong whereas normally yeah. if it's you know if there's something that happens on track um you know it's a little bit further away but when the, the car's right there you're always kind of praying for a good stop praying that everything will be fine and that the car will go out and especially if you're racing someone at the time it's kind of you actually get to see if you know all of your your plans in terms of strategy comes out and it all works out so yeah but that's that's definitely the bit where you can't do anything I think is the bit that makes me more nervous than the bit where I feel like I've, I can still contribute. Oh is there a race that when you look back that you said that went that was like the perfect race do you have a like a favorite race that you um, were working on? I think favourite is a tough one. I think in terms of the most perfect race that we've done in recent history would be um, Brazil 2019, um, where we came fourth and fifth. Um, So we were the highest uh, team scoring in terms of what we achieved that day. Um, And that was a real, like, excellent blend of teamwork, everybody, every member of the team, um, pushing everything to the limit, um, and we also did a, did a really strong strategy that day. Um, and there was a day where there was a lot of teams not consistently doing the, the correct strategy, people making mistakes. Um, and we decided ahead of the race that we were going to keep our cars together. Now, normally you would maybe um, you would you'd give an advantage to the car in front because that's the car that can score the most points. It's the way most Formula One teams work. And that day we decided that actually because of the specifics of the track and the way that the strategy was going to work, we were going to basically go together. So kind of like have one car protecting the next car, um, which involves a lot of like high speed teamwork from the drivers as well. So we actually ended up pitting, you know, you pit the car behind, which could in fact end up, you could end up undercutting your lead car, but we had an agreement that we would do that. And then we would always swap back if the, if we ended up doing it so that way we protected our cars going through uh, because we knew it would be such a such a kind of fine margin um, and so it was a really great day because like not only did we get a great result but normally you have one driver on one side of the garage that's happier than the other one um, and and that day I there wasn't one person in the team that wasn't incredibly happy um, and it was just such a lovely moment to come back after the race and to see both drivers you know sat there beaming um, and kind of like, you know, giving each other a hug and being like, we did it. So that was that was a really great day. Yeah, it must have been wonderful for everyone, like in the box and the drivers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, do you do you chat to the others, the other teams, you know, the, the you know, your uh, colleagues, the other um, Formula One teams? Is there any sort of competition? Are you very top secret guarded with your information or do you kind of... Well, in, stories or tips yeah in covid days it's a bit harder too because uh, historically the paddock is very kind of sociable place you know you go for go for a kind of walk and then you'd be able to see people that you kind of see your opposite numbers um now i think it's more about whatsapp groups or things like this um but no i think i mean you kind of end up getting on well with your opposite numbers um because there's there's ultimately you know there's 10 people on a pit wall in any given race there's some more people in the factory but you know you're really small group of individuals that also know what you're going through um and um I think it's I mean for me I think I was I was raised to kind of be able to shake someone's hand when they uh have done uh, done a better job than you and now I guess it's a elbow pump or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no I mean I think I, I do get on well with uh, there's quite a few of the strategists that I've been friends with for years and um, and it, it's a nice level of sportsmanship and it's a nice camaraderie 
Um, and you know, you, every now and again, when there's a there's a curveball, you go, oh, I remember that safety car. So it's <laughs> it's nice to like not just have your team, but also to have the kind of the people that you're competing with. And you see the same thing with the drivers as well that they do have a level of kind of like sportsmanship because also they're the only other people in the world that know exactly what it's like to go through uh, what they're going through. Yeah, of course. Um, changing the topic just slightly, um, sustainability is becoming, you know, more and more important throughout the world. And we've seen the arrival of Formula E. Um, are there any changes happening um, in your sport? Yeah, so um, actually this year for the first time ever, the FIA, so this is the, the governing body of our of our um, sport, has basically in, included an environmental accreditation as part of our sporting regulation. So teams have to reach certain standards in order to be able to compete. And and that is basically, I think Formula One is going to be, is, is targeting to be carbon neutral by 2025. Um, we, we no longer have single-use plastics, for example, at the races. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, small steps in the correct direction that are, are being made to try to make uh, to make a positive um, step and also be you know more of an advocate for let's say reusability recyclability um, a lot of has been going on over the last past few years in terms of the cost cap as well um, to make it so that as a sport itself um, we're more sustainable financially as well which goes hand in hand with the obviously the amount of um, expenditure you have and the amount of resources you use um, in terms of um, now we have a cost cap for the first time as well uh, in recent years so it's definitely moving in the in the correct direction. Uh, one thing about um, Formula One, at least from the outside, it seems to be very much a, a men's sport, or at least historically it was. But there are more and more women getting involved. Is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, definitely. I think it's I think it's it's just going to keep growing, and, and I think hopefully in the next generation we have a much more mixed uh, pit lane with like not just you know men and women but in terms of different races as well and have a bit more of a multicultural melting pot um i think it's uh, it's a really um positive step and i think we've still got a long way to to go to get to be you know equal representation because you know i truly believe that there isn't any kind of advantage or disadvantage from being a woman um and so statistically and i'm a statistics person uh, you yeah. would imagine that the 50 percent uh 50 percent of the best people would be women as well so hopefully we get to that point um, oh, in the yeah. not too distant future you're also uh, part of uh, an association called girls on track uk can you tell tell us a little bit about that yeah, so the FIA Girls on Track initiative um, initially started by, um, was founded as, was called Dare to be Different by Susie Wolf. Um, so she was a driver um, and um, a real advocate for, for kind of women in motorsport. Um, and it's basically trying to create a network of women that work in all forms of motorsport, in all different um, areas of motorsport, whether that's um, driving, um, media, um, engineering, mechanics, um, and to create a platform that women and girls, when they want to make decisions at school, for example, and they don't know what subjects they would like to do, or they don't, they can't, you can't be what you can't see. So it's about having that, that just creating a network and, and creating a visibility for the fact that we are here. Um, and we want, um, we want, any girl or any woman that maybe thinks oh this isn't a sport for me uh to like not only be able to kind of see that representation but to be able to actually you know send an email 
ask a question, say, how do I do that? And get the answers from, from the correct source and actually go straight to the straight to the place where you can go and speak to, you know, women that are have been in Formula One for years or women that have been in a different area of motorsport for years and they can tell you directly, oh, well, actually, you can just do this. Um, and I think it's it's really about, you know, one thing I would say about women in, in motorsport is I've never met a single woman that doesn't want more women in, in motorsport. It's not a case of like, you know, climbing climbing a ladder and then closing a door. It's about climbing a ladder and then putting your hand down and helping somebody else up. Um, and it's it's a wonderful, a wonderful community. And there's there's so many um, so many women and, and, and girls that I've seen. Well, start as girls and then now as women. I mean, it, it, this initiative that when it started as Dare to be Different has been going on for five years um and there's there's you know kids that grow into adults that are now starting jobs in formula one teams and i remember speaking to them when they were doing their a levels um and we've got um, our development driver tatiana calderon um i met her through this initiative um and when we were looking for a development driver um back in 2016 um towards the end of 2016 beginning of 2017 um, I suggested her name and uh, to our previous team principal um, and then she was selected um, and the day that she sat in a Formula One car for the first time in her life I nearly cried because oh, I was like this is lovely. what it's truly about you know and it's yeah. it, she got through the door herself it wasn't it wasn't a favour but the connections and the networking she would never have had the opportunity to have had even had the conversation without that initiative and without knowing the right person that means that when they're having a conversation in all the rooms where decisions are made in the world that it's a woman's name that also comes up as well as a man's name and that that you have an ability to actually be there and be be a candidate before you're even kind of knocked out by the fact that you aren't even on the table yeah what advice do you give to young girls that maybe contact you for you know like you mentioned uh, a levels you know do what maths. kind of, do <laughs> maths okay oh dear it's not for me then <laughs> yeah so yeah, maths is the secret maths is the secret yeah so they're always kind of asking what what you know what do you want to do to be a good strategist and you have quite a lot of disciplines actually in formula one so um, i'm an engineer but we, there's other um strategists that have come from a um, computer science background or a pure mathematics background or a physics background um, but your maths is the maths is the key um, I'm biased because I think engineering is the best and you know it's a lot <laughs> about problem solving and I think that's a lot more interesting than you know abstract problems because I'm a uh, um, I'm biased as I say but um, so I probably normally I say you want to do a lot of maths you want to make sure you get the highest score you can um, pick um, science-based um, subjects where you can when you know most countries offer a kind of a, a choice as kids get to 18 or 16 um, and then when it comes to universities um, try and pick a, like a university that's got a good um, um, a good representation within uh, that STEM discipline. So something that's the, in the UK, for example, we have quite high, we have quite a ranking system with universities. Other countries, it's not quite the same. Um, but yeah. I think that's the thing. And then when it comes to applying to jobs, it's just keep applying. You know, don't don't think that no is a no. No is a it's not a yes yet. Um, and you can have 50 people say no and all you need is one person to say yes and there isn't one person in Formula One that has got there by everybody saying yes all the time you know somebody said no to Lewis Hamilton probably wasn't a great idea um, and someone said <laughs> yeah. you know someone said no to you know Ross Braun and, and, and the engineers and the greatest mechanic and the greatest engineer in the pit lane at some point it's just part of life so yeah 
don't take no not to get yeah not to get knocked down keep going definitely all right i have one last question um and then we have a little surprise for you but um so the last question is you've you've had a hugely successful career are there any big dreams left that you want to achieve win a championship i think i think i think everybody wants to everybody in formula one wants to win it um and i think um i think everybody that's a strategist would love to to be able to say that they were a world champion strategist as well as uh, you know it's not just the drivers that get these titles we can also yeah go, of but. course <laughs> oh excellent well i've got my fingers crossed i will be following you very closely from now on uh, before we close we have a little series of like rapid fire questions it's just a little bit of fun we do it with everyone um there's no right or wrong answer so you can really just say what comes into you know first comes into your head um i think we have 10 so are, are you ready yes i am ready so if you hadn't got uh, gotten involved with Formula One, what other career would have maybe interested you? Um, I'd be working for NASA, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So just a different operations room. So kind of doing, uh, yeah. I'd like to go work, yeah, work there. Work with rockets instead of cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doing the kind of, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. Okay. Next question. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Um, I am a night owl, but my life is like an early bird life. So like the constant struggle. Um, no, I, I do actually work better in the mornings, but I don't like them. Okay, it's fair enough. <laughs> Straight yeah. saying it. Okay, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Teleportation. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, especially in Formula One, it would make everything so much easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you could just jump from one, uh, one track to the other. Yeah. Actually... The next question is a little similar. If you could travel in time, where would you go? Uh, right now, you probably go like um, just before the thing that happened in the race. That meant that if you did the strategy differently, you could win the oh, race. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I think uh, I think after three weeks of just thinking about Formula One, I don't think I could think of an example that wasn't a oh. Formula One example. So yeah, it would be kind of lap twelve or something oh. like this. <laughs> oh, excellent! I love that. Okay, do you have a recurring dream? Um, Yes, I do. It's, um, it's last exam, the dream. So I, I constantly wake up, even though it's been like a decade since I've done an exam, thinking I've got one more exam to do on my finals. And my mother still has it. She has the same dream. And she obviously graduated a lot more than 10 years ago. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so now we always have the, yeah, the, the, the constant fear that you've got, oh, no, I've still got like an, an air and acoustics exam, exam and I don't remember it and I've got to get this done. If I don't get this, I won't graduate. So probably gives oh. you an understanding of my, uh, how cool I am that I have maths yeah. dreams. So. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, what do you value most in a friend? In a friend, um, the ability to not get mad at me for not being in the around all the time so like all my friends um thankfully uh, they all do weird jobs as well so they they understand that like you know if and they say oh can we meet up you know or see each other um that, that might be like four months later because we're all in different countries so yeah t- tolerance tolerance for my weird lifestyle probably oh, that's a good one. <laughs> okay yeah. here's a silly one favorite dessert favorite dessert probably like a sorbet okay like a like a lemon sorbet like a palate cleanser I'm not a big dessert person okay which is uh, I'm allergic to chocolate so it knocks out a lot of a lot of desserts for me 
Okay, so lemon sorbet. All right. Yeah. Uh, what's your ultimate happy fix? Um, in terms of for me being getting home, like yeah. being seeing my other half, the dog. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just the the, the, the I think the uh, the little things in life are actually the big things. So yeah. that's that's for oh, that's me. nice. Okay, uh, uh, what song ne- never fails to uh, make you dance? Oh, I think a sympathy for the devil. Okay, good one. Uh, what is the fastest speed you've ever driven? Not that fast. I'm a I'm a rule follower. I think I live by regulation, so I'm like okay, I only drive it. Yeah. yeah, I only drive with a speed limit, I think. Okay. <laughs> I've been in a car being driven quicker in the kind of demo run, but no, not me driving. I'm, I'm, I'll stick to the numbers, thanks. Okay, all right then. <laughs> Is there a, a second or a moment in your life that really changed your history or your direction or um, definitely, I, good answer this one. So I was oh. hit. I was hit by a car when I was eighteen um, and nearly died. So I spent some months in hospital, kind of uh, flatline for a while. Um, oh wow! And that really changed my life completely. Um, so I um, had to really push through to be able to to get to not lose a year of my degree. Um, and if for the first time in my life, things weren't like academically easy because I'd missed so much, um, so much time because of the, the accident itself and then the rehab and relearning how to walk um, and understanding that my leg was never going to be the same. And there was things that I could no longer do, um, but then also being very grateful for the fact that I now have had um, 12 years of life that I shouldn't have had and it has changed everything in terms of the way that I approach my whole world um, because because I know that realistically I shouldn't actually be here um, yeah. and that when times are tough it really makes me be more grateful for that and the fact that whenever I'm scared like for example you know yeah. if you're on a grid or you're worried about something I think back to kind of uh, 19-year-old me, the first time I got back on a bike, a push bike, um, and it proved to myself that I could do it and I wasn't going to be afraid of it. And I'm like, well, that was the bravest thing you've ever done, so you can't be scared of a stupid race. Like, you've, you've got to just get on with it now. Like, you can't, you, she's, you can't, like, you know, disappoint her. She was really brave, so now you have to just man up or woman up and, and get on with it. So, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I'd always say, always say I love you as well at the end of, of phone calls to people that you care about because, uh, yeah, you never know. You never know. Wow, what a lovely way to to end our podcast. Thank you so much for for explaining all your world to us. It's been <laughs> no it's been fascinating, and uh, I will watch Formula One with uh, fresh eyes now. Um, Perfect. <laughs> I'll be thinking about you in the in the in the paddock and in the box doing your thing. So, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and thank you so much for listening um, at home. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Uh, we'll be back soon with another all-star guest. But until then, stay safe, stay well. I invite you to subscribe to the She Is Speaking podcast so you don't miss out on this episode or future episodes that include a lineup of exceptional women. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.